There are people who drive us crazy at our jobs. But science hasn't given that particular problem a lot of thought. Recently, a guy named Will Phelps may have made some small progress in this area. He wanted to figure out if one person in a workplace can ruin a workplace. Not just disrupt the way that people get along and fill coworkers with weird feelings and uncomfortable moments that they think about for hours afterwards, but could one person actually lower productivity? Does one bad apple spoil the whole bunch? First off, can I maybe just describe a little bit what the what like what, what kind of behaviors count as as bad apple behaviors? This is Will Phelps. I reached him on the phone in the Netherlands, where these days he is an assistant professor of management at the Rotterdam School of Management. But back when he was in grad school doing this research, he read all the relevant studies on teamwork and group dynamics, looking for clues about bad apple behavior. And he didn't find much. But he did find, buried in correlation tables and footnotes, three personality types, three kinds of behavior that seem to hurt group dynamics and group performance in a bad apple sort of way. And these three sets of behaviors are, well, in in sort of layman's terms, you'd say someone who is a, a real jerk who attacks or insults others, someone who's a slacker, who does less than they can, and then finally someone who's sort of a depressive pessimist. So if you have a team member or an office mate who's a real jerk, slacker, or a depressive pessimist, there's a, there's a chance, or at least and actually maybe a fairly good chance, that they might spoil the barrel. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we, in the laboratory is that we create bad apples in the laboratory and, and see what effects they have. We create these by hiring confederates. Now you're saying confederate. You mean you hire an actor. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we hire an actor. And in particular, so what, what, what I did is I just uh, advertised for someone who uh, was willing to participate in experiments and m- maybe display negative behavior and got a number of people who auditioned. There were, there were maybe 12 people who, who showed up. And there was one guy who was head and shoulders better than everybody else. The actor was a college student named Nick Fasatelli, and once Will had him, he started his experiment. It went like this. He got college students and put them into teams of four. That would be three undergraduates plus the actor who was undercover. The other undergrads didn't know that he was an actor in cahoots with the researchers. Will gave all the groups the same task to do. It was an exercise where they made some basic management decisions. And Will told them that they would be scored and there would be a prize of 100 bucks per person for the group that did the best. So they were motivated to do well. They would work together for maybe about 45 minutes on this task. We would videotape this. And this, this actor, Nick, he would display one of three types of uh, bad apple behavior, right? He'd either be a jerk, a slacker, or a depressive pessimist. Mm-hmm. And first, the sort of jerk behavior, right? What we did was someone would make a comment. He would say, are you kidding me? Um, he'd also make comments like, have you, have you actually taken a business course before to, to sort of embarrass them or insult them? How would he do slacker? Well, one, he would sort of lean back in his chair, maybe put his feet up on the desk, uh, and then he would start text messaging a friend on his cell phone. <laughs> and sometime during the experiment, he would pull out a, like a meal, right? So he would, he would pull out um, <laughs> a sandwich and a, um, a, a Coke. And then how did he do depressive? Yeah, in, in that case, what he would do is, <laughs> in some ways... Because um, i got to say, he's only got 45 minutes, you know what I mean? Like, like it's such a small <laughs> palette with which to communicate depressive. It was challenging for him. 
and he would put his uh, head down on the uh, on the table and <laughs> just look like I don't know his, his his cat had died. That was what he he said was sort of his his uh, mental inspiration. The scripts that the actor used are included in Appendix A of Will's study, and they specify that the depressive pessimist will complain that the task that they're doing is unenjoyable. They make statements doubting the group's ability to succeed. That the jerk will state that other people's ideas are not adequate, but will offer no alternatives himself. And he'll say, you guys need to listen to the expert. Me. That the slacker character will say whatever, and I really don't care. Now, the conventional wisdom in the research on this kind of thing is that none of this should have had much effect on the group at all. Groups are powerful. Group dynamics are powerful. And so groups dominate individuals, not the other way around. There's tons of research going back decades demonstrating that people conform to group values and norms. But Will found the opposite. Invariably, the groups that had um, this actor, Nick, uh, behaving in these ways would perform worse. And this despite the fact that there were, in, in some groups, people who were very talented, very smart, very, very likable. In fact, the actor's behavior had a profound effect. In dozens of trials, over and over, when he acted like a bad apple with a group, that group would perform 30 to 40 percent worse than groups without a bad apple. And even more surprising to Will was how dramatic the effect was on the way people in the groups treated each other. People would argue and fight, um, and they would not share their relevant information. Uh, they would communicate less. When he was really any of these types of bad apples, but what was sort of eerily surprising was how these team members would start to sort of take on his characteristics. So, for example, I mean, we remember we videotaped all of these, and you would see that people would start. Well, so when he was a jerk, they, they would be they would be a jerk too, right? So they would start being a little bit insulting or abrasive or obnoxious. And what was really interesting is that they wouldn't just do it sort of in response to him, but also to each other, right? So this is sort of a, a, like a spillover effect. When Nick acted like a slacker, the spillover effect would kick in, and eventually someone else in the group would declare that the task they'd been given just wasn't important. Someone would, would eventually say, let's just get this over with. <laughs> Let, you know, let's just uh, fill in some responses and get out of here. And they would they would just mark down anything and then and then give up. What was maybe the most interesting and surprising was with the with the depressive pessimist. You know, I just remember watching this video where um, you start out, all the members are sitting up straight, energized, very excited to to take on this uh, potentially interesting and challenging task, and then by the end, they are like him, all um, w- with their heads on the desk. So they've, they, I mean, which is very strange. You're not used to seeing a group of people who are sort of sprawled out on the desk as they do a t- uh, any kind of a job or a task. What's This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our show, we have stories of bad apples and people who are accused of being bad apples. Like, for example, one family who refused to vaccinate their kids for measles, and then that led to a measles outbreak with quarantines and lots of other kids getting sick. Comedian Mike Birbiglia explains in our show today how he personally, single-handedly, ruined a charity fundraiser. And Nancy Updike tells the story of a special place, a magical place, a place where no one is allowed to ruin things for anyone else. Because 
in this last week as we've been uh, putting together this show, I've really been struck at how common bad apples are. Truthfully, I've been kind of haunted by my conversation with Will Phelps. Hearing about his research, you realize just how easy it is to poison any group. Will Phelps told me about this study that somebody did looking at all kinds of industries and businesses, and what they found is that the best predictor of how any team performs is not how great the best member is or what the average member of the group is like. It all comes down to what your worst team member is like. The teams with the worst person at the bottom, those teams perform the poorest. That's harsh. And I, and i got to say, everybody in our office who's heard Will's interview, we were talking about this earlier today, each of us has had moments this past week where we individually by ourselves have wondered, am I doing bad apple stuff? You know, am I the bad apple unwittingly? And when I talked to Will about this, I asked him if he found himself doing this as well in his own workplace. Uh, here's his response. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, I have become very sensitive to this type of behavior. I mean, I, I catch myself sometimes. Well, I, I'm just very worried now about my effect on other people. I have to say, I... I used to <laughs> I used to tease a lot more. You know, I used to kind of poke fun at people and their tendencies a lot more than I do now. You know, I, I thought this was fun, that this was building camaraderie, that this was something that they appreciated. But what was interesting is, for example, uh, watching these experiments with this actor, um, people would, for example, even laugh at his jokes, you know, when he was making fun of someone else. They would all laugh. But then afterwards... For example, when they would rate whether or not they would be willing to work on this team again, they would say, uh, definitely not. I hate this. It was having a really negative impact, and I guess that rubbed off on me. So I just stopped being, I don't know, I stopped teasing so much. Now, of course, this is just one study in the laboratory, as Will points out, group dynamics in the real world, where people work together for more than 45 minutes, maybe different in some ways, yet to be studied. The Will uh, did see one glimmer of hope in his research. It was in one group in the study. It was the most surprising thing that happened during this research, something that completely caught Will off guard. There's one group where the, where, the, where the bad apple didn't spoil the barrel. There was one group that performed really well. And, and what was that group doing? There was just one guy who was particularly a particularly good leader. And what he would do is he would ask questions, and he would in, engage all the team members and diffuse conflicts. And I found out later uh, that he's actually the son of a, of a diplomat. So his father, I guess, is the, a diplomat from, oh, I forget, some South American country. And he had this amazing diplomatic ability to diffuse the conflict uh, that was, uh, was normally would emerge when, when uh, this actor, Nick, would display all this uh, you know, real jerk behavior. Seeing this diplomat's son do his thing has led Will to his next research project which is about whether a group leader can change the dynamics and performance of a group simply by going around and asking questions, soliciting everyone's opinions, making sure everybody is heard. If that is true, if listening is all that it takes to overcome bad behavior, if listening is more powerful than meanness, sloth, or depression, it's like, it's like a, a trick from a children's story, a, a golden rule kind of lesson that seems way too after-school special to possibly be true. That by listening to each other, trying to understand each other, we can get to the point where nobody can ruin things for everyone else. One bad apple don't spoil a whole bunch, girl.
Equine, shots in the dark. Okay, here's a situation where one family has the chance to ruin things for a lot of people. It's when they decide whether or not to vaccinate their kids. As you've probably heard, there's a whole movement of parents who do not vaccinate because they're scared of the vaccines. This is not just in the United States, but all over the world. There are books. People tell their stories on daytime TV. The issue from the people who believe in vaccines is that unvaccinated kids put everybody in danger. Diseases like measles, which for all practical purposes were eradicated in the United States, now can get a foothold because so many children in some communities are unvaccinated. This is a touchy, divisive, and bitter debate, but at least it's usually pretty abstract. It's people arguing over what might happen someday because outbreaks of these diseases are so rare. But last winter, 12 kids came down with measles in San Diego, and it all started with a child whose parents had decided not to vaccinate him. Susan Burton tells what happened. The measles came from Switzerland. A seven-year-old San Diego boy caught the measles there during a family trip. He flew home to the States without any symptoms, and by the time he got sick and doctors figured out what it was, the boy had already exposed other children, and the outbreak had begun. A health warning for parents, a new cluster of measles cases at a San Diego school. Already, the potentially deadly disease has spread to 11 unimmunized children. Three cases are still pending, and another 60 people are in quarantine. Health officials also caution anyone who was at this Trader Joe's in Hillcrest on February 3rd or at Whole Foods Market in Hillcrest on January 29th during the two-hour window that the disease was in the air. Every day there were new locations. Chuck E. Cheese, a pediatrician's office, a swim school for babies. One child exposed a plane load of football fans on their way to the NFL Pro Bowl in Hawaii. Meanwhile, the local news was giving everyone a panicky crash course in the disease. If you are not immunized and you're this close to an infected child, there's a good chance you can catch the measles. But even 50 feet away, you can still contract the disease. In fact, up to 100 feet away, and you're still at risk of catching the measles. Measles is like a disease in a horror movie. It's one of the most contagious diseases known to mankind. It lingers in the air for two hours after a person with it has left the room. The rash makes a person look like they've grown a whole new red skin. Measles can be fatal. And so the San Diego County Health Department immediately launched into detective work on a massive scale. They had to reconstruct the tiniest details of toddlers' lives. Who'd been at what birthday party or at whose house for a play date? There were 980 exposures they had to investigate, including 160 from the plane to Hawaii, where the infected child from the flight was now being kept in isolation on a military base. The people at risk were mainly unvaccinated children, either those whose parents had opted out of the shot or babies who were too young to get the shot. It's usually given when kids turn one. To stop the measles from spreading, the health officials decided to do something old-fashioned, something that's rarely used anymore in this country. They instituted a quarantine. And this is the story of what that meant for that community of parents, about what happened when the actions of one family suddenly had a huge effect on dozens of other families and children. Hillary Chambers' daughter, Finley, had just turned one when she was quarantined. I was really uh, angry, and I felt like, I mean, it impacted families financially, emotionally, on so many different levels. So, you know, I was mad and wanted to know, you know, how did this happen? And, and so, you know, I did talk to friends, and I have a friend um, named Paige who's one of those people that's just totally connected and knows everyone. And so she would, and, and she, her kids uh, weren't even involved in the quarantine, but she would call me and go, okay. So th- this is what I heard. <laughs> it was this, you know, it was this family was at this place. And Here's then, how you know, one-year-old Finley ended up in quarantine. 
Hillary took her to daycare on a Monday morning, and one of the teachers asked, very sweetly, if Finley had been vaccinated for measles yet. When Hillary said no, she was sent to the daycare office with Finley in her arms. The room was packed with people. There was all kinds of commotion. And a woman from the health department standing there with a clipboard. I walked up to her and was kind of like, you know, what's going on? And she said, you guys, you know, can't can't be here right now. And I said, okay, uh, if I take her to the doctor and get her shot today, can I bring her back tomorrow? And she said, um, she is not to leave your property for the next three weeks. And my first, re- I laughed out loud and I asked her if she could babysit <laughs> because <laughs> it was either that or or freak out, which is kind of what I did next. I mean, I... It, it was so sudden, and I was scared, and 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 also, what what was I going to do for the next three weeks? My husband and I both work, you know, and there was people everywhere, and my daughter, and I have to be at work in an hour. At first, Hillary was scared Finley was going to come down with the measles, but she didn't, and after a few days, quarantine wasn't frightening, just tedious. Hillary and Finley would play downstairs, and then to shake things up, they would go upstairs. She got regular calls from the health department. Someone checked every other day to make sure Hillary was keeping Finley quarantined. It was like being under surveillance. She even felt weird taking Finley outside to blow bubbles in the driveway, like someone would know. Being cooped up during an epidemic used to be a typical part of motherhood. There's an argument that vaccines have actually made it possible for women to work. Hillary's a radio DJ, and during the outbreak, she and her husband tag-teamed. My husband would wake up and go to work at 6 a.m. and just see all his customers early. He would try and be home by noon, and and we would literally high-five on, like, the you know, I would hand him Finley, and uh, and I would take off running, be live 1 to 3, pre-tape the following morning, and, and on and on. It was crazy. So you, when you're pre-recording the following morning, you're, like, saying, it's it's Tuesday morning, it's, you know, sunny oh, and yeah. 80 degrees outside oh, in San Diego. Yeah. Okay. And okay. this song is for so-and-so who just called from Rancho Bernardo. I mean, just you have to make it sound like it's real. <laughs> There's the Cardigans on San Diego Star 94.1. It's Hillary. I've been getting so many calls about Jeff and Jerry's thank you party. If you need the info, it's on Even though Hillary was planning on getting Finley vaccinated for measles, she was hesitant about it. Vaccine anxiety is pretty standard for a certain kind of overprotective mother, and I count myself among them. One who shops at Whole Foods and worries about chemicals and plastic and toys made in China. The shots are scary because, first of all, they're not all natural. There's no organic version of the diphtheria shot. And second of all, you have no control over them, unlike you do over the rest of what goes into your child's body. Free-range non-hormone meat, organic milk and yogurt. I mean, we're pretty careful. Organic fruits and vegetables the lotion that I put on her, you know, the toys, all of that. And I can regulate that. And I have control over that. But a vaccine, it, it, it's like you're handing your child over to the doctor and saying, okay, now inject her with something that I have no idea what it is. And it's supposed to be good for them eventually and protect them. And I hope it does. But, you know. So... Is there a way in which you feel like you understand kind of the Switzerland family? You understand uh, the, their mindset about the vaccines? No. No. Well, I, no, I'm sorry. I take that back. I do. I, uh, as far as choosing not to vaccinate, yes, I definitely get that. I definitely understand that it's scary. And getting vaccinated, I feel like, is a leap of faith. Um, I think the the battle starts when... You know, one person's choices affect other people. 
so one person's, you know, how their child exposed all these other kids. And I mean, that's, that's a really big deal. And, and that's just really not being a responsible member of this community, I feel like. heard anything about vaccines at all, it's probably this, that there's a controversy about whether the shots lead to autism. This idea goes back about 10 years to a paper about the MMR vaccine, that's measles, mumps, and rubella, that was published in the British medical journal The Lancet. That paper has since been discredited. The journal actually retracted it. Study after study confirms that the shot does not cause autism. But it's hard to shake the fear that it might be true. Partly because every mom has heard stories of kids who became autistic after getting the MMR shot. There are YouTube videos. Hi, Eric. The stories usually go like this. A mom takes her totally normal baby to the doctor. That baby gets the MMR shot. In the days that follow, he stops babbling, stops making eye contact, just slips inside himself, and is never the same again. Eric. Hey. But saying it plainly, there is no causal relationship between the vaccine and autism, is asking for a fight. One of the autism researchers I interviewed was reluctant to speak on the radio. He sent me an email about a colleague who's received death threats for saying there's no connection between autism and the MMR. Real death threats, as in when the guy goes to lunch at the CDC in Atlanta, he has bodyguards. All the articles I looked at online for this story are the kind that have a thousand vitriolic comments underneath. And it's not just anti-vaccinators who are saying crazy, mean stuff. There are haters on both sides. I've been called a murderer, potential murderer, um, more, yeah, more than once. This is Sybil Carlson. During the outbreak, she talked to a lot of reporters about how she doesn't vaccinate her children. Oh, it's just over and over. I don't know how many blogs I was on where, you know, don't I care about anybody else's children? And don't I know that the FDA and the CDC say this is all perfectly safe and I shouldn't question them? And what am I talking about? I'm just a mom. I don't have any medical degrees. Sybil is friends with the mom who went to Switzerland. When the outbreak happened, the Switzerland mom didn't want to talk to the media. In fact, almost none of the non-vaccinators would. Except Sybil, who became the Switzerland mom's de facto stand-in. She and her friends all got together one day. The kids played on the back deck while the mothers hammered out Sybil's talking points. And then Sybil went home and started taking calls from reporters. Our phone was just ringing off the hook. And my husband would be like, uh, it's Time Magazine, uh, it's the Today Show, it's Nightline. I mean, it was just every single day he started laughing, you know, because these people were just calling from left and right. So I'd, okay, she'll talk. <laughs> and... Yeah. And in the beginning, I would. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get this information out there. And I'm, you know, I'm going to really tell them about this. And I'm just going to change people's thinking. No. The media has an agenda. And the agenda is to take someone like me and sort of nitpick apart and edit to the point where basically you were scared, you read some bad things, so you didn't vaccinate because you didn't want your children to be autistic. But it's so much more than that. For parents like Sybil who don't vaccinate, Autism is just one concern. They're also worried about autoimmune diseases and unknown long-term health effects that they believe are caused by lots of different vaccines. They cite medical studies and data they suspect aren't telling us the whole truth about vaccine safety. I'm pretty sympathetic to this stuff. When Sybil says that aluminum, a vaccine additive, is a known neurotoxin, I'm right there with her. But other things sound shakier. 
Still, what anyone can understand is the essence of Sybil's position, which is this. She doesn't trust the system, and you're not going to vaccinate if you don't have that faith. That's the difference between Sybil and parents who do vaccinate. It's not that they're more altruistic. It's just that they trust the system, and she doesn't. Sybil deeply believes that getting a shot could permanently harm her child. And that's scary, especially when a doctor is trying to bully you into vaccinating. She tells the story of a time she took her son to the emergency room for a dog bite, and she got into an argument with the doctor about whether her son needed a tetanus shot. You know, we kind of went back and forth, and he became very angry at me and started um, chastising me for not giving my children, you know, I can't believe he didn't have a pertussis vaccination. Why wouldn't you give him the, you know, the, de- the whole DTAP series? And he said, you know, what's your problem with the vaccinations? I think it's probably one o'clock in the morning at this point. You know, I've been, you know, up half the night. My child's been, you know, fussy and crying. And I'm sort of at this point really having a hard time defending myself. And he really, really pushed and harped on me. And, and you know, he scared me. He started using scare attacks. He's going to get sepsis. He's going to die. And they're not related to tetanus. And his agenda really, I could tell at that point, was he wanted, he was going to get a DTAP into my child. Um because he felt like he could force me to. Um, I did give in, which, you know, during further research, I realized later, even talking to my doctor, was just completely unnecessary. So that just, it just ruined my faith even more. It sort of hit me like, wow, is it really this bad, you know? So that was, yeah, that was a big moment for me. Sybil gets that by not vaccinating her children, she's putting other children at risk. She doesn't dispute that. But she thinks it's unacceptable that her kids, or anyone's kids, should have to risk serious side effects from a vaccine. So until she's satisfied that the vaccine system is safer, she's willing to risk her kids getting the measles. But I spoke to another mother in San Diego who thought that choice seemed absurd. And then, and then the rash started getting worse. It just started spreading further down into his body. This is Megan Campbell. Her son was 10 months old when he was exposed to measles in the pediatrician's office, which he visited on the same day as the Switzerland family. Megan's baby was one of the first kids affected in the outbreak, before everyone put together what was going on. The doctor kept telling her it was just a run-of-the-mill virus. But as the days went by, Megan's son kept getting sicker. Come Saturday, uh, my parents came down from Los Angeles and took one look at him and said, your, your kid has the measles, you know, because they come from a generation that knows what, it's looks lo- what it looks like. Well, at that point, um, my son had, a, had the full rash all the way to his toes, and we would never put him down even for a nap. Um, so, you know, like I said, my parents were down to help um, so that we were just, you know, someone was always holding him because I was... Honestly, very afraid to put him down and lose him. I thought, you know, as long as we were, as we were holding him, then, then we knew his heart was beating. Megan took her son to the emergency room. When she told him he might have measles, it took two hours for them to figure out how to get him inside the hospital without exposing everyone else. Finally, they came out with a blanket, wrapped him up, and rushed him into a secure room. He dropped from 18 pounds to 12 pounds in five days. The first thing they had to do was put in an IV. He was so dehydrated that his veins had collapsed. It took an hour and four nurses to get a needle into his wrist. Her son was screaming. Megan couldn't take it. She had to leave the room. There were moments when I was worried that he wouldn't make it because this fever just wasn't letting up. This 
106 fever and and this rash um, that made my son look um, look like an alien almost and I, I almost you know wondered if he was if he was gonna look if he was gonna be the same boy that he, that, that he was you know a week before you know and I I was a mom who has taken probably 50 pictures of my son every day since he was born <laughs> yeah. and there are no pictures of him from the moment that he got this until, uh, until he was finally better because it wasn't my son and I never want to remember him looking that way While Megan's son was in the hospital, news of the outbreak hit. And I just wondered, you know, how this family who had brought this into San Diego, were they watching this television and what were they thinking? Were they thinking that they were part of, of something that put that child there? Or, you know, were they, did they feel for us at all? Um, did they feel bad about it? Megan's son was sick for weeks. Megan and her husband both had to take a month off work. They were dumping him into ice baths when his fever spiked, constantly watching for side effects of the measles, blindness, brain swelling. When it was all over, Megan and her husband found they couldn't engage in the vaccine debate. And I have very close friends who, um, who don't vaccinate their children. And it's, it's just something that we can't talk about. We get too angry, we can barely speak. Um, I feel like... If I were to engage in the conversation, we might not be friends anymore. <laughs> do you think it should be a choice? Like, do you think people should be able to opt out of the measles vaccine? Yes, but they have to live on an island. <laughs> 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 Their own little infectious disease island. Don't go to the same doctors as the rest of us. Don't go to the same schools. Don't go to the same, you know, stores. Don't, I mean... You know, li- live on a live on an island somewhere. <laughs> That's the choice you want to make. But families that opt out of vaccines don't live on an island. They live all over the country, and there are more of them all the time. Which is why they're of such concern to the CDC. They threaten the herd. There's this vaccine concept called herd immunity, which means that if a certain percentage of the population is immunized, it's really hard for diseases to spread. And so the most vulnerable people, babies, people with weak immune systems, old people, are protected. But when you fall below that percentage, suddenly infections jump exponentially. And that's what happened here during the last measles epidemic almost 20 years ago, when 123 people died. Back then, it was poor kids who weren't getting immunized, kids who didn't have access to the shots. Now it's the well-off kids of highly educated parents. So the CDC is spending a lot of time right now trying to figure out why these parents aren't vaccinating, just trying to understand their concerns. And they're working on a booklet to help doctors deliver the message better, how to reassure nervous parents. And parents nervous about vaccines are legion. A lot of them go to this guy. My experience, though, with parents, when they're making vaccine decisions, they're not thinking public health policy or public health safety. They're thinking about just their own child's health. But, you know, I mean, what can I say? I I say, you know, I understand you have the right to make that choice. That's Dr. Bob Sears. He's one of the sons of the famous Dr. Sears, William Sears, an author of a big parenting manual, kind of a Bible for crunchy moms. Dr. Bob, as people call him, 
is also the doctor for the non-vaccinating family that went to Switzerland. He's had thousands of conversations with parents about whether they should vaccinate. He's written a book on the subject. In my book, I actually speak to this issue using an analogy from, you know, one of the all-time greatest TV shows ever, Star Trek. You know, there's a, there's a great quote in Star Trek where, uh, you know, Spock says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And um, there's no better, you know, way you could sort of look at that than with vaccines. And, you know, Spock was saying this in the movie while he was dying, to save the you know the, the the Starship Enterprise and and you know would Spock's mom have said you know his son, her son made a good decision because she had to lose her son over it it's it's a big dilemma and I honestly must say I I think parents ultimately are going to choose what they view as best for the one instead of looking at what's best for the many. Have you ever used that Star Trek line in your office with like a? A science, a sci-fi type dad who was. Oh yeah, if there's, a, if there's a yeah, if there's a geeky dad. Oh yeah, of course. I like to pull that out. <laughs> and does that uh, does that convert a hesitant vaccinator? <laughs> no, no, of course not. No. The CDC has found the same thing as Dr. Bob, that this argument just doesn't work. After the outbreak in San Diego, the CDC conducted focus groups with some of the parents involved. And one of the things they discovered was that the outbreak didn't change anybody's mind. The intentionally unvaccinated kids who got the measles came through it just fine, which proved to their parents that measles is kind of like chickenpox, not that big a deal. On the other side, the pro-vaccinators felt ratified. Like, see, it's good to get the shot, because these diseases do come around. Because even though the measles connected everyone in San Diego, everybody experienced the outbreak in their own little quarantine. Susan Burton in New York. Coming up, what it's like to be invited to a big charity event that you then ruin. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's this American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, ruining it for the rest of us. Stories of people who are accused of ruining everything for everybody else or who simply know that they are doing that. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2. Tragedy minus comedy equals time. Specifically, a long, long time between laughs. Mike Berbiglia is the kind of working comedian who tours and he does specials on Comedy Central, but he is not exactly a household name. Recently, he told an audience about a bad experience he had as a performer, one uh, where he personally did not rise to the occasion. In fact, he says... It was the worst show he's ever done in his life. It happened this year. I was asked to perform at a charity golf tournament in New Jersey. 
So I woke up for this charity golf event, and I have a... I realized recently that I'm not, like, a good adult yet. Like, I think if you're a good adult, you, like, plan your outfit according to what will occur when you leave the house. But I don't have that part of my brain. I'm just like, one outfit, forever! You know, and I, <laughs> So I went and I played golf, and I brought my brother Joe. And uh, Joe is, Joe's kind of like a bad entourage member. He's never like, you the man, Mike. He's always like, I don't know what Dad would think about this. And Do you think they have any more shrimp? You know, that kind of thing. But uh, we showed up to play golf, and they paired us up with these two other people. And it was a celebrity tournament, and the people were like, who do you think our celebrity is going to be? And, uh, and I was, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and Joe and I were like, yeah, who do you think our celebrity is going to be? And then I'm like, oh no, I think it might be me. And then like I'm apologizing to these people. I'm like, I'm really sorry I'm your celebrity. If you think this is disappointing for you, you can't imagine how I feel. So I'm, like, apologizing the whole day, and then at the end of the day, like, sure enough, my pants are all wrinkled, and I have to be at this, performing this semi-formal banquet, and I'm like, what about one outfit forever? I thought that was a good plan, you know? And so, here's what I do. As damage control, I go to the locker room, to iron my own pants. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty good plan. And uh, I find an iron, but I couldn't find a board. So I take off my pants. I'm just ironing them on a bench in the locker room in my underwear, which is a dead giveaway that these are my only pants. And so I'm ironing my pants, and I put them on... And I go up to the event, and this is where the trouble really begins. Um, it's important for me, before I tell you this part of the story, to remind you uh, that you're on my side. <laughs> I said to the woman in charge, I go, what's the format of the show? And she goes, well, there's two speakers, and then you, and then a raffle. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that's exciting because I've never opened for a raffle. And um, I'm trying to stay optimistic, you know, and I'm sitting in the back of the room with my brother Joe. And the first speaker comes on the stage and he's an 11-year-old boy who survived leukemia. I know. He's not funny at all. He focuses primarily on the leukemia, and everyone is crying. Literally, everyone is crying. I'm even crying in the back of the room for two reasons. One, the kid, and two, for me. Because uh, I have to perform comedy, and it gets worse. Because Joe leans over and he goes, this ain't looking so good, Mike. I said, I concur. 
The second speaker was Hall of Fame quarterback Phil Simms. Uh, and, yeah, he got a, he's got one fan here. Uh, <laughs> But he's a, he's a broadcaster, and he's a, he gives an amazing, inspiring speech. And he even th- sprinkles in a few jokes about golf. They were similar to jokes I had thought of about golf that day. It was like watching the last drops of my joke canteen drip out onto a desert of cancer. And... He gets a standing ovation, which he should have. Clearly the show is over. Surely there can't be anyone more famous than Hall of Fame quarterback Phil Simms. But wait. There was. It was Mike Birbiglia, who had no business being at this event. I know there are some entertainers who might have risen to the challenge, and I would love to be one of those entertainers, but I am not. As a matter of fact, I have a habit in my life of making awkward situations even more awkward. Like, I've said this before, but a few years ago, I was moving a new bed into my apartment, and this woman who lived in the building opened the front door for me with her key, and she goes, I'm not worried because a rapist wouldn't have a bed like that. That's how she started the conversation. Now, what I should have said was nothing. What I did say was you'd be surprised. And there's nothing you can say after that. You're just like, see you around the building, you know, that kind of thing. I've thought about this a lot, and... I think there's something wrong with my brain where I don't have an on-deck circle for ideas. It's just, batter up, you know? And a lot of the ideas are bad, and they're at the plate going, I don't know about this one, Mike. And I just turn into this drunk Little League dad. I'm like, you go take some cuts, son. As a comedian, when people laugh, it's very, it's very exciting. You know, it's a very neat thing. And uh, when they don't, it feels like you're performing jazz. Because uh, they're kind of bobbing their head and looking to the side. And uh, sometimes that's okay. I'm like, I like jazz, you know. But then I get worried because I'm like, sometimes jazz sucks. What if I'm the Kenny G of comedy? You know, like, what if I think I sound like this? Like, and in fact, I sound like this. So I'm on stage at the charity golf tournament, and I'm just Kenny Jean it up, you know? I'm just for 10 minutes, just no, 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 just blowing that horn, you know? And. And I don't want to fail. I mean, that's a really important point in this story, is that I wa- these are good people, and I want to succeed for them, but I just can't, you know? And so I think to myself, why don't I cater my material to this specific event? And everyone has been talking about cancer. 
I know. I'm in the future also. (laughs) I had that thought on stage for about one second and then batter up! I said to the audience, a true story, I said I went to the doctor and they told me there was something in my bladder and whenever they tell you that, it's never anything good. You know, like we found something in your bladder and it's season tickets to the Yankees! (laughs) That was the response I was hoping for. (laughs) At that point, I just threw in the towel. I mean, I was just devastated. I I thanked the audience and apologized simultaneously. which I've never done. I was like, thank you, sorry for ruining your event. And I just kind of walked off. And I was so upset, and I I, I walked over to Joe. And I go, Joe, we are leaving. Now. And that's when Joe said, and I quote, Mike, I can't. They're just about to start the raffle. (laughs) And because everybody left, my odds are amazing. (laughs) And that is the worst show I have ever done in my entire life. Yeah. Mike Rubiglia. That story's been recorded on one of his CDs, My Secret Public Journal, which was put out by Comedy Central and can be downloaded online at the iTunes store. I started a joke Which started the whole world crying But I didn't see That the joke was on me Factory, disturbing the peace train. Nothing is too big to be ruined. Entire civilizations have been ruined. Species have vanished from the earth. And yet, something as small, as mundane, as one person's day can also be ruined. Nancy Updike has this story about the lessons to be learned from small-scale ruin and how, by trying to eradicate a problem, one can become the problem. The story is going to end up exactly where you'd expect it to at the entrance to a giant inflatable large intestine. But first, a few words about bad behavior. This is the sound of a person clipping their nails. And this sound in public, I find, is so unexpected and distinctive that it cuts through any other sound that might be going on. Dinner being served, a person giving a speech, the hum of an airplane's cabin. It's possible you're having trouble following the words I'm saying right now because this sound is so disturbing. Public nail clipping, of course, is rare. Maybe that's why it's so memorable when it does happen. But it's part of a category of activities that isn't rare at all, that is, in fact, happening every day. Cutting in line, parking in two spaces at once, kicking the back of someone's seat during a movie, driving on the shoulder in a traffic jam. 
When these things are not happening to you, it's easy to say, this is small potatoes, who cares? But we do care. These are the stories we tell our spouses and friends when they ask how our day was. And the questions we have about these encounters are always the same. Is it me? Am I alone in finding this irritating? This is bad public behavior, right? Or am I just a crank? The only way to know for sure is to find other people who feel the same way. Which brings us to Amtrak. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As a reminder, if you hear this announcement, you are in the quiet car. There are no cell phones permitted to be used. Your conversations must be maintained at a whisper level. And no electronic devices that emit noise are permitted while in the quiet car. Thank you very much for your cooperation. Have a pleasant trip. Now, some of you may already have heard of the quiet car, but briefly what happened is this. Amtrak's East Coast route from Washington to Boston that goes through Philadelphia and New York is Amtrak's most profitable and most heavily traveled route. And about 10 years ago, a bunch of frequent Philly to D.C. travelers started asking Amtrak if there could please be one car on the train, just one, in which people would shut up. No cell phones, no beeping games, no yammering. Silence. The quiet car was a huge hit. Amtrak added quiet cars to more routes and more times of day. Commuter rail lines started calling about setting up their own quiet cars. Amtrak trademarked the name Quiet Car. Now, if the idea of the quiet car doesn't appeal to you, just imagine a place where the thing that annoys you most is forbidden. Whatever it is. A friend of mine hates it when people in the grocery store get bagels out of the bin with their hands instead of using the little pieces of wax paper. It would be as though she went to the grocery store and they had a special room set aside where bare hands in the bins was not permitted. Utopia. I started traveling almost every week between Washington and New York, three and a half hours each way. And here's how it went for me in the quiet car. Stage one, glee tinged with self-righteousness. See, I'm not an uptight crank. This is an entire train car full of people who agree with me. I am not alone. Stage two, I am an uptight crank. And here's the kind of uptight crank I am. I started taking notes. August 12th. When you walk into the quiet car, people look up at you to see whether you're a member of the club. Are you someone who knows the rules and is here on purpose? Or are you one of the others, some regular traveling schmo who stumbled into the car by accident, has no idea where you are, and is going to whip out your cell phone and ruin everything? October 18th. A scene in the quiet car. A man in a suit starts talking on his cell phone. The man sitting behind him asks him not to use his cell phone. Man in suit. Relax, buddy. Man behind him. You relax and follow the rules. Suddenly it's mayhem. An old man stands up and says, Yes, follow the rules. I hope you respect the rules. The man behind the cell phone talker piles on. Respect the rules. Ignorant people don't respect rules. For a moment it seems like it could actually get violent. But it doesn't. The man on the cell phone keeps talking while he stands up and walks out. There's triumphalism in the air as he leaves. Everything I need to know about the appeal of fascism, I'm learning from the quiet car. January 24th. I heard the loudest sound today. It was a man behind me, sighing. 
I had to change seats. After I change seats, someone in the row in front of my new seat gets on his cell phone. I exchange a glance with the man across the aisle, a glance that says, Are you hearing what I'm hearing? We're trying to stay calm, no conductor in sight. The man on the phone says, Hey, Mark, how are you? Hold on, let me get my calendar. I stand up and lean over the seat and whisper, politely, I think, This is the quiet car, no cell phones. The man makes an apologetic face and very pleasantly gets up and leaves. Other people in the car thank me with their eyes. March 7th. The quiet car is not bad in and of itself, but it encourages me to see myself as a quiet car person. It's tribal. I am quiet and good. Other people are loud and rude. I am the beleaguered hero of my own world. The woman sitting in the row ahead of me now, in her 50s, wearing movie star shades and a cute hat, talking at a level I can hear. She's the other kind of person. Self-loving, oblivious, spoiled. I'm better than that. As though my quiet car demeanor is a gift I give the world, rather than a choice I make for my own reasons. After all, wasn't I the one laughing too loudly a couple of times at dinner last night? Do I only like to be quiet in the places I want to be quiet? April 10th. I've started putting in earplugs in the quiet car. I know this is insane. June 3rd. The train lost power and we're sitting on the tracks, not moving. Almost immediately, quiet car discipline broke down, as if the silence had been running on the same electrical system as the air conditioning. One woman got on speakerphone. Another woman started talking loudly into her phone about winemaking. I heard someone clipping their nails. No joke. Not just one stray nail, all ten, one after another. A man started having a loud, boring conversation to escape his boredom. Yeah, we're stuck. Can you believe it? I don't know. I just called to let you guys know. So what are you up to? I am sitting here shocked. I'm thinking loud thoughts at everyone around me. Is this all it takes for you to turn into savages? Where is your pride? Don't we stand for anything? We are quiet car people. January 18th. The quiet car felt like a revolution at first, an overthrowing of a bad order. But then the revolution comes for you. I got off the train in Washington one night, exhausted, seven hours in the quiet car, up to New York and back in one day. And when I walked into the atrium of Union Station, there it was. A massive inflatable colon, a large intestine, with people walking in one end and out the other, part of a colon cancer awareness campaign. I stood there staring at it. When you're tired, anything can seem symbolic especially something that's in your way, requiring a decision. Will you go around the giant colon and ignore what it has to say about the state of your health? Not how well you appear to the world, but the real truth of the matter. Or will you step inside and take a good look at all the foulness you've accumulated in your gut? I decided to go around it. Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our show. 
You say I should do it differently. I don't necessarily agree. Well, our program was produced today by Lisa Pollock and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, Sarah Koenig, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production album, Seth Lind and PJ Vote. Music album, Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Terry Mitchell, Eliza Byington, David Heckman, and Molly Antipal. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by the Saab 9.3 Turbo. With an EPA estimated 29 miles per gallon on the highway, it strikes a balance between efficiency and performance. Learn more about the Saab 9.3 Turbo at SaabUSA.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, I told him, I told him just the other day, why did you buy all of that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Lehman Brothers? That was just a bad idea. I know. <laughs> I'm in the future also. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Better things that you can do Or does your love revolve around me too But you want what I need Oh please I think you get on hearing yourself speak Round and round in the conversation Always ends where it begins Round and round and I need a vacation I got a headache from you Shut up So why do you hear voice shut up? PRI Public Radio International